0: I'm assuming most of you here this morning are Christians, but probably not everyone. Uh, Maybe a wife or a husband or a friend drug you the church this morning, and and that's fine. Or maybe you just came because uh, you're a little bit curious about what this Christian thing is, and um, you want to see what it's about. And that's all cool because I think there's going to be a little something here for everybody this morning. Now, my question for you is, do you ever feel like, or at least sometimes feel like, that your life is just one big three alarm fire? Like, one after the other, things going on in your life? And if you're anything like me, sometimes you just feel like you're constantly playing life on defense, right? Like, man, where do we get ahead? Sometimes my prayers just feel like one consistent, repeating SOS to God. Well, this morning I want to talk a little bit about victory, about victory. And I want us to challenge our mindsets. I want us to challenge our thinking a little bit. We're going to be uh, taking a look at the epistle or letter of 1 John, chapter 5, this morning. Now, 1 John is one of three letters believed to have been written by the Apostle John, in addition to the Gospel of John. And some of you may remember John, along with his brother James, sons of Zebedee, were two of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. He, John, was the one who referred to himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 23, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He, along with his brother James, appear often in the Gospels. Both John and James are often mentioned in scripture, along with Peter. The three of them came from a fishing background, and they all knew each other. He, along, um, uh, excuse me, um, John's father, He owned a fishing boat, and it was while on their father Zebedee's boat that John and James were both called by Jesus as his disciples. Now, there was a deep personal relationship between Jesus and John. That's evident in the Gospels. John was part of Jesus's inner circle of three, along with his brother James and also Peter, But perhaps Jesus' closeness to John is no more apparent than when Jesus was dying on the cross and said to John in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 27, Behold your mother, speaking of his own mother, Mary. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her into his own home. Now, as, one of the, uh, as of the writing of John, as of the time of John's writing here, John himself was getting up in age. He was now an elder statesman of the faith. John wrote this letter from Ephesus, it's believed, around 90 AD. By this time, most of the apostles, the 12 disciples of Jesus's inner circle, had all been executed. Even John's brother, James, was gone. What was the purpose of this letter? Well, John wanted to reassure Christians in their faith and counter some false teaching that was going on in the church. A heretical faction had developed within the church, a faction that promoted false teachings concerning the person and nature of Christ. Scholars have identified this heresy as what was called docetism. The Docetists denied that Jesus had actually become flesh and blood. They denied that God had come in in the human body. According to the writer Aramaeus, they represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but instead as being the son of Joseph and Mary, born in the ordinary way. While Jesus, nevertheless, was more righteous and wise than the other men, they claimed after his baptism, Christ descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove from God, and that he proclaimed the Father and performed miracles, but at Jesus' death, he departed. He could not be put to death because he was spirit. So in this letter, John refutes this heretical faction, and eventually they left the fellowship. But in so doing, they, the Docetists, Expose the reality that they didn't actually belong to God's family. We could read about that in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. However, their false teachings still lingered in the minds of many of the faithful. So John wrote to clear the air of all the falsehoods and bring believers back to the pure beginning of the gospel and the basics of the Christian life. So in, uh, in this letter, John urges his readers to have fellowship with God in the light, to confess their sins, to love God, to love fellow Christians, to abide in Christ, to purify themselves from worldly lusts, to know God personally and experience him, to appreciate the gift of eternal life, And to rest in our victory and assurance, Christ has overcome the world. And then, follow the spirit of truth. So John also stressed how necessary it was for the early believers to maintain a proper relationship with those who are fellow followers of Jesus. Fellowship's a two-way experience, both, both with fellow believers and with God. Throughout his first letter, John seems to have been addressing his comments to those who were claiming to have a relationship with God, yet had left the fellowship of believers and didn't exhibit love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll begin there. Verse 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So how can we know if a person is really a Christian? Well, we can't, (laughs) at least not for certain. We're not God and we can't see into the hearts of people, nor are we called to, but Scripture tells us true believers believe that Jesus is the Christ. To believe means to put one's trust and confidence in and to be convicted of the truth. To believe in Jesus as the Christ means to literally trust him as God's Messiah, the anointed one, and to trust him with our life. It means believing that Jesus is in fact God, yet at the same time, God's one and only son and that he was anointed by the Spirit of God to preach the good news of the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, die on the cross for our sins, rise from the dead, and become the savior of all mankind. Amen. However, belief that Jesus is a Christ also must produce love for God and for fellow Christians. These two elements can't be separated. Our new birth as Christians produces this transformation in believers. All who believe that Jesus is the Christ are brothers and sisters in him. No matter where they live, what races they are, what languages they speak, or what they think about other biblical matters. As true believers, we should love all those who share the same faith in Jesus as the Christ. They have the same father, and everyone who loves the father loves the son. Christians are a part of God's family and fellow believers as brothers and sisters. God determines who the other family members are. Believers are simply called to accept and love them because they love God. Verse 2 and 3 says, By this we know we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So just as love for our brothers and sisters is a sign of our love for God, so is our obedience to the Lord a proof of our love for him. Christians can't love God without loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, nor can we claim to love God and yet live in disobedience to him. Love of God demands obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 14, 21, he said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. John chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I want you to think about that for a minute. Now, let me me ask you something here. For those of you in romantic relationships... When you first fell in love with your husband or your wife or your fiance, did you not do everything you could to please them? Come on, you know you did. (laughs) Why did you do that? Why did you do that? You did that because you loved them. Your desire to please them was driven by your love for them and still should be. That's the evidence of your love. Our obedience to God is evidence of our love for him. We don't obey him because we have to. We obey him because it pleases him. And because we love him and because we trust him. Love is the nature of God. Scripture tells us God is love. And love is the ultimate expression of relationship. God created you and me for that relationship with him. But love must be a choice. Love must be given freely. The sad irony is, in order for us to truly love God, we have to be free not to. We have to have choice. It was that choice that Adam and Eve were faced with in the garden. And it's that choice every human being born since has been faced with. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Living to please someone we love isn't a burden. It's a pleasure. Do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus? And did you notice that all these scriptures where Jesus mentions obedience, he also included love? Verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The world looks at God's commands as limiting, prudish, burdensome. But we Christians, those born again in a relationship with him, know that obeying God isn't a burden because of the power of God's love within us and our genuine desire to please him because of our affection for him. Our faith gives us victory that has already overcome the world. We know how the story ends. We are his children. We have eternal promises of God. Interestingly, the word here for victory is the Greek word Nike, a word now used for sports equipment, but it symbolizes the ultimate victory. Our faith in Christ provides the power source and the means to victory. As believers, our trust in God through Christ allows us to participate in the victory Christ won for us through his sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Way back in chapter 4, verse 4, John congratulated believers for having overcome false teaching and he explained, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The world, the word world means the same thing there in chapter 4, verse 4 and 5 as it does here. The term world is the Greek word cosmos, which means the arrangement or system. Describing the world system, everything standing in opposition to God. Scripture tells us, Christians, there are three specific things we have been equipped for and are instructed to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. James tells us in James 4-7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Paul gives us a list of weapons of spiritual warfare we need to use in overcoming our spiritual enemy. In Ephesians 6 verses 14-17, through Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, But here, John explained what it meant to overcome the world. He said, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's our faith that overcomes the world. But faith in what? Faith in what? Our faith in Jesus Christ our faith in the person and works of the Lord Jesus that gains victory over the world. It's trusting in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our savior, for the forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting. That's how we've overcome the world. It's our faith and our identity in Jesus, the Christ Messiah, our savior and his finished work on the cross that ensures our victory. Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death in our place, so that we wouldn't have to pay the eternal penalty for our own sin. In doing so, he satisfied God's perfect justice. All who trust in Jesus are identified with him and his victory. We are identified with his life. We are identified with his death. We are identified with his victory over sin, death, and the world. Because the Lord has overcome the world, all who trust in his name have also overcome the world through their identity and relationship with him. By faith in Christ, we have overcome the world and the evil one. My question for us is, is our identity in Christ or is it something else? Do we love him above all else? Are we living lives that reflect our love for him? Do we have victory in our life? Do you have victory in your life? It's yours. It's your inheritance. Embrace it. Verse six and eight. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood and the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth for there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree he who came by water and blood john makes it clear that jesus he speaks of is not the jesus of the false teachers who is so holy that he had nothing to do with the world The Jesus we must believe on is the Jesus who came by water and blood, the Jesus who is part of a real, material, flesh-and-blood world. Theologians have debated debated the meaning of John's reference to blood and water here, and I don't know, (laughs) not for sure either. But perhaps the simplest view is, The water spoke of Jesus' first birth, being born of waters of the womb. And blood speaks of his death. And if this is true, John would be simply saying, Jesus was born like a man, and he died like a man. Jesus was completely human, not some separate supernatural being with no real contact with the physical world, as the false teachers had claimed verse 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has, has borne concerning his Son. According to the Jewish law, familiar to many, if not most, of the church in John's day, the testimony of one person was not a valid witness. Truth or the validity of a thing had to be established by two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17 and chapter 19. And since people believe human testimony when validated by two or three witnesses, John explained that surely they would believe the greater testimony that comes from God. The gospel twice records God's clear declaration that Jesus is God's son. First at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3, and then at his transfiguration, where before his disciples, Jesus' Jesus's appearance was transformed and his face shone like the sun in Matthew 17. And doesn't the Holy Spirit testify to Jesus in our hearts? All three form a single testimony from God that Jesus is the Christ. Verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And his life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the testimony. In the previous verse, John had, had uh, told us how serious the matter of believing the testimony of God was. Now he's telling us what the testimony is. That God has given us eternal life and this life is, is in his son. This is God's essential message to humanity that eternal life is a gift from God. Received in Jesus Christ he who has the son has life he who does not have the son of God does not have life it's all about Jesus and living in Jesus Jesus is the only way to eternal life he who does not have the son of God does not have life some might argue wow that's that's pretty heavy that doesn't seem fair Why can there only be one one way to God? And that's reinforced in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 12, where it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what about that? What about that question? That doesn't seem fair. Why would God only allow one way? Why would he only allow one way? If one, were, if one truly understands or understood the rebellious and sinful condition of humanity before the holy God of the universe, they would quickly realize that, really, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The question should be, why would a perfect, good, holy, just, and righteous God who knows knows everything I ever did, everything I ever thought, and everything I ever said still allow me to draw another breath in this life? That should be the question. Let alone offer me eternal life. The painful truth is, paying the price for our sin himself through his son is the only way God's perfect justice can be met. Otherwise, no one could ever be good enough to have eternal life. He only has one way because he loves us more than we can ever imagine, and it's the only way we can be made holy and acceptable before him. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation has everything to do with what Jesus did and absolutely nothing to do with what we do. We simply need to accept the gift. If someone offers you a gift, and, and presents it to you. Here, I want you to have this. Until you take possession of it, it's just an offer. It's just an offer. In order for that gift to be ours, we have to accept it. In order for that gift to be ours, we have to take possession of it. He goes on to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. How important that we believe on the name of the Son of God. For there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. We can never forget that it was the blood of Christ that saved us from the penalty of sin. And it was the cross of Jesus that saved us from the power of sin. As believers, we are positioned in Christ. As believers, we are identified with Christ's death. And so as believers, we were crucified with Christ. But also as believers, we are identified with the resurrection of Christ. And because he lives, we too shall live eternally. For he has broken the power of sin and death. As believers, we have victory. We have victory. Verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. We as believers can have the confidence that we can approach God and that He listens to our prayers. For the same reason we have confidence that we are His children and that we have eternal life. Confidence means boldness, freedom to speak. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then go with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This promise focuses on prayer, that whatever believers ask for needs to be in accordance with his will, God's will, not our own. How do we know what God's will is? How do we know what God's will is? Our awareness increases as part of our growth in our relationship with Jesus. And this is why it's so important that we have the right Jesus. And why it matters what we believe about God. Because as we study his word and live out our faith and obedience and love, God's nature, his character his values, his desires become more and more evident to us. Our hearts and his heart merge more and more in understanding and agreement. Then our prayers begin to take the shape of his will more and more as we grow and as we're changed into the image of Christ. When we choose to submit our will to God's will, The Holy Spirit in us teaches us to understand God's will more and more. The Holy Spirit reveals God's will as it is taught in the Bible. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray in line with God's will. Romans 8 verse 26 and 27 says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what it is what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of god jesus himself modeled this in the lord's prayer your will be done when we believers align our prayers to god's will he hears them and when we can be certain that he will and we can be certain that he will give us An answer. Praying in line with God's will is the key to getting whatever we ask of him. Prayer in line with God's will is prayer for the benefit of God's plan for us. That's victory. So, in conclusion, I believe there are three important takeaways for us in this passage. First, John chapter 5 begins with an important idea. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is born of God. Those who truly love God also love their spiritual brothers and sisters. We show this love for God and others through obeying God's commands. Remember 1 John Uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, by this way we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Why? Because Christians aren't motivated by fear or legalism, any of that stuff. We're motivated by love. We're motivated by love for God and love of each other. John highlights the power of believers to conquer the sins of temptation of this world through a relationship, a right relationship with God. Second, in verses 6 through 12, it focuses on Jesus as God's son. It does matter what we believe. It does matter what we believe. And third, in verse 13 through 15, John focuses on how believers can have victory in prayer. Christian, you have victory. You have victory. Embrace it. Embrace your victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you've shown us this morning. Lord, we we pray... Lord, to accept and embrace the victory you've already given us, Lord. Help us to overcome the world. Help us to overcome ourselves. Help us to overcome all the adversity that we face as your children. Nothing happens to us that's outside your knowledge. Nothing we experience is beyond beyond you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and all the glory this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.